Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello, Nara Court, and welcome to the uh, to Paleo Jam as part of National Science Week. Nara Court, say hello. We are live in a building in Narracourt. We are in the supper room of the town hall. Thank you to the um, to the Narracourt Lucendale Council and to the Narracourt case um, for for helping us with this. Um, and we're doing um, an episode to, uh, tonight where we're going to be travelling back in time um, and talking about some stories from the caves, tales from the caves. And we have a panel with us, but we've also got a couple of people, well, one particular lady in the audience who's going to come up and tell us some stuff. Um, I'm going to get each of the panel to... You've got 30 seconds, who you are and why you love the caves. Erica Vickery. uh, Closer to the microphone. We had this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Erica Vickery, um, former mayor, um, community member uh, in Narracourt for most of my life, and the caves has been like a playground for uh, for us and for my family and friends, and it is just one of those important parts of Narracourt and really gives us our, our identity. Next to you is Mr Steve Bourne, I believe. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, uh, Steve Bourne. Uh, born in the area and uh, first went to the caves as a, as a kid, as everybody in Narracourt did. Uh, we did um, a school excursion out there in first year high school, which was the, was a long-running tradition. I think that pr- program ran for about 40 years. Uh, and while I was working, I decided I, for whatever reason, I'd like to work at the caves. So I started there guiding in 1990 and then thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to be manager here? So uh, by 2002, I was the manager and, and spent a, a bit of time there. So I loved the place and, and still attached to it. And one of your staff at the time was uh, sitting right next to you. Recruited that one. And what a fine recruit he was. Oh, thank you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Um, I'll say something in my... You're supposed to introduce yourself. Oh, sorry, I'm Barb. I'm yeah. a site interpreter <laughs> at the Narracourt Caves. Um, I'll say something in my second day, and I'll never forget this, of working at the caves. Um, someone said to me, um, we're walking out of Victoria Fossil Cave, and this person said to me, um, this job will either just be a job to you, um, or it will become part of your life. And it has become part of my life. Um, I've been involved with lots of things, and it's just, as Erica said, it's such a special place. Um, sharing with anything from little school kids right through to everybody, the community, people that visit um, the site. So, yeah. So um, I want to come 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 to you, um, Erica. We we chatted on the phone a, a, a week or so ago, and you were talking about how, as a as a youngling, so not that long ago, um, you would ride your bicycle to the caves, and it reminded me of a conversation I had with Judy Murdoch who's a local historian, um, and she talked about um, Blanche Cave that was known as the Big Cave, um, and she talked about these parties and 21st. So she got here as a... She was a school teacher, I think, and and 
all these 21sts were being held. Um, did you have your 21st in the big cave? Or, or when, when you were cycling to the cave, what was, what was your, your, your thing with the caves? I, I didn't have my um, 21st in the cave, but it would have been a good idea. <laughs> um, at the time when we were just neighbourhood kids, we spent a lot of time going around all sorts of places on our bikes and we'd gather in the morning and say, now where are we going to? And more often than not, we'd say, out to the caves. So as a little group, and I suppose we were primary school at that stage, we'd get on our bikes and ride out there, have a few adventures on the way out, you know, helping lambs out of sticky situations and the fences and things like that. And then we'd spend all day just poking around out at the cave site because there were no fences around any of the, the caves, like the Stick Tomato Cave, the Wombat Cave. All those caves were open and accessible to anybody at that stage. So you just and like just rock we, up on your bicycle and yep. just walk down into the cave? Yes. And sometimes it was probably more dangerous than we should have been, but with a big group of us, off we went with torches and and investigated um, those smaller caves that, you know, now have a, a, a fence around them so that people remain out of them. And, and I can understand doing that. And the big cave, the Blanche Cave, we often had our picnic lunch in there and um, drove around and climbed around the whole thing. Um, and then at the end of the day, we'd pack ourselves up and eventually get home and uh, do it again. Couple of days later, and that's one of the things that that, that, mm. that Judy talks about. That there was it was, mm. uh, and, and this is this is obviously before World Heritage. Yep. World Heritage, yep. by necessity, changes things mm. because it means that <clears throat> there are certain things that you can and can't do, and there are good reasons for those mm, things. Exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, that was me, by the way. That wasn't that wasn't Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you, you know. Um, and, and there are lots of good reasons for that mm. uh, world heritage to, to preserve the things. And to, one of the things that Judy talks about is that there was uh, uh, an international scout jamboree and there was this massive party in the big cave. And there ended up being a food throwing <laughs> party in it mm. um, and wine bottles and things. And it's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, but it, it, it's interesting how it speaks to a different time, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Steve, so World Heritage came about, you were at the caves. Yeah, 1994. Yep. And you were manager at the time? No, so no this before is my time. Yep. Pre-managing. So yep. what was, how, how did that transition work with the community, I guess? What did you see and the, in terms the of actual, that change? The, the actual time of World Heritage, not much changed at all. Uh, and it was like, oh, it's now World Heritage listed, but it was like still the same cave, still the same tour. Uh, and the, the real change came in, in 1998 when uh, the Wanambi Fossil Centre opened. So World Heritage was the vehicle that uh, enabled funding to be sought to develop the site, to create the Wanambi Fossil Centre and build the profile of the site. And the, the visitor numbers literally doubled uh, overnight, and that was a a remarkable challenge to go from a site that was, and that was about where I started working there full time, from from around thirty-five to forty thousand to eighty thousand cave visits a year. It became very busy. 
And in terms of visitors, I'm really interested in in, in the local community because because yeah. we've got mm. all these people riding their bicycles. I mean, it's not like hordes of people; it's like swarms yeah. of people on their bicycles. Yeah. But you've got these twenty firsts happening, and so people that's yeah. visitation. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this yeah, is so, so, this so is more the, of a tourist visitation. Yeah, so that, that was a tourist thing, and for the, for the locals, that that the. the the, the locking up of the caves, if you like, probably happened a bit earlier that, uh, than that when the national parks took over the site because it was known as a, a national pleasure resort for a long period of time. <laughs> that was its actual <laughs> official title from uh, about 1917 from memory. And when the National Act, Parks Act came into being in 1972, it became a park. And, and that's when restrictions came, became, you know, came in the first time and, and people started to go, oh, we can't do... The things that Eric is talking about uh, in the caves, because it's now part of the park. So there was a little bit of a pushback for a while, and then when World Heritage came, um, we know that there was caves on private land that were actually filled in because landholders didn't want this World Heritage monster coming along and taking their land. So it took a while for people to understand that World Heritage is a good thing, doesn't change much, and there's lots of advantages of having it. And, and lots of opportunities, oh, opportunities in terms yeah. of tourism and, and yeah. bringing people in and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and you would have seen this in your time, Barb, yeah, the changes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so what do, what do I want to ask each of you? Um, Favourite story of your experience with the caves? And I know it's probably like picking a favourite mm. child, but tell us <laughs> a little story about the caves. Barb, you go first. Yeah, I think um, Steve's actually got a brochure here from um, the South Australian Museum, um, the first paleontology week in 2004. Very special um, when you've got several hundred school children from the region filling that lawn between the fossil centre and the caves cafe. It was just amazing. Um, there was some... And knowing it, that it was their place. Yeah, and there was some young on. singing paleontologist oh, yeah, there, wasn't right. there, I've heard. Yeah, that yeah. was it, yes. <laughs> In his, his younger, was, youthful days. It was just days. an amazing event, yeah, and yeah. continued to be. Yeah, and, yeah. and paleontology we went for, I think, 10 years, and it was yeah. just such a... Yeah. Narrow Court was so pivotal in that. Yeah. And, and I guess that comes to, to, to you know, the, the world heritage and the yeah. reason for the world heritage of the Narrow Court Caves is because of the extraordinary fossil heritage. Right. We must never forget, of course, that caves are living ecosystems now, and so those processes continue that, that saw the, the, the protodons and other things yeah. falling in or accumulating into the caves in, in one way or another. Yeah. Um, but it's that, that fossil heritage. And we've got a few things on, on the table here. There's a, you know, there's a thylacoleo skull and a stenurin and, and a Professor Flint CD. Um, <laughs> um, so, so Which that, is very good, by that, the way. That was it. That was it. I've heard that. Um, so, um, do, you know, do you know how Paleontology Week started? I, I, this is a great little story. No pressure then. So you're telling, saying it's a great story. It better be. All right, come okay, on. Okay, Tell us a story. Okay, no pressure. So uh, I came home from work one night and my partner Liz said to me, um, I've just been looking, there's an archaeology week, but there's, there's no paleontology week. And, uh, and at the time there was a, a grant round through the South Australian Tourism Commission available and there was, there was funds of up to $10,000. And at the time the tourism minister, Jane Lomax-Smith, was very fond of, of Narracourt Caves. 
and we were working closely with the South Australian Museum. So uh, this was this was early in the week, and the grant was due Friday afternoon. Uh, and so I, I spoke to Sue Mickelson at the museum, and she said, "Yeah, great idea." So we threw an application together. I met with her and Tim Flannery, who was the director at the museum at the time. Steve Riley was general manager. Did up some letters of support, walked them through it, and they said, "Yep, that's great." Uh, then wandered over to the tourism commission, uh, up to the top floor, and walked in and said, "There's our application," <laughs> and uh, and we got the money. And Paleontology Week started. And and for me, Paleontology Week, in terms of the development yeah. of Professor Flint, was was absolutely key. So I mm-hmm. I created this character. And then a year after the character was, was created, Paleontology Week happened. So all of these paleontologists from around the world and Australia were coming to Adelaide and South Australia, and I got to hang out with them. I got to hang out with them here in Narraquart. Mm. You know, 2004 for me was a, was a pivotal moment. I got to... I remember crawling through one of the caves with Terry Reardon, who's a, a bat... Uh, researcher, and Rod Wells, who's one of the two that discovered the fossil bed, crawling on our bellies in a fossil cave that Rod hadn't been in for 20 years, you know. Um, Many years later, 2022, Megafest last year, um, we did an episode of this podcast where I sat with Rod in Victoria Cave, in the place where he had sat 53 years beforehand. And while a podcast is obviously an audio thing, it was just this, there was, and Barb was was with us, um, and, and it's just this remarkable thing of being with the guy and talking about the thing that he's pointing at and stuff. There was just something, even when you listen to it, I reckon you, you, you get a sense sense of it. Um, come to you, Erica, favourite favorite memory of the cave. It doesn't have to be Professor Flint related. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so sorry, but it's not. <laughs> Oh. oh. <laughs> um, I'm actually Did you hear the audience groan then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that a groan audience? <laughs> no, it was a laugh. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going back to the um, 1960s when the um, fossil bed was discovered. So uh, I was at the high school at that stage as a student um, and involved with the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. And we had a sleepover at the caves or should I say camp over, um, with a big group of us that were doing our Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Uh, And one of the um, things that we were going to do was to map the Stick Tomato Cave with um, compasses and and measurements and a few other uh, interesting things. We went out there on the Friday night. We were camped with just sleeping bags and pretty basic equipment, especially one of our group of girls that I was with. We couldn't sleep, so we went for a walk at night, got caught and got really told off. So the next day they said, as punishment, we weren't allowed to do what the girls were planning to do. We were sent with the boys. I mean, what a punishment, really. (laughs) (laughs) And and that was actually um, mapping one of the, the smaller caves, which we did. Then... After um, in the afternoon, they said, as a special treat to you, we have just discovered this fossil bed um, by Rod Wells and, and Grant Gartrell, and you are going to be one of the first groups to be able to crawl through through their little passageway to see this fossil bed. What a thrill at that time 
it was terrifying because I'm not really great on, you know, small caves and claustrophobic, but it was, I don't think at 15 I realised just the significance of it all until I looked back on it later. But that little group of students were one of the very first to see those fossils at the end of, you know, the Victoria Cave now, which is so accessible and so well liked by people and it gives them an absolute thrill to, to be able to see back into history. Awesome. And, and I guess fascinating for you, when you walk through it now, you can mm. see, so we, we, did a, we did a tour this morning um, <laughs> with, with James, one of the fabulous um, Sire interpreters there, yep. and he's pointing out these particular areas where Rod and Grant had crawled, crawled through. through. So you walk through that, that. Mm. and you, you have that same yeah, memory. Absolutely. And, and talk about it and stuff. Yeah. Can I just cool. add that? To that, now I have grandchildren um, who absolutely love the cave, don't they, Tom? <laughs> and they could nearly do the the um, guiding as um, young guides because they every time they come from Adelaide, they want to go out to the caves. But um, we did one of the adventure caves eventually with them and because one of them was under 12, they had to have an adult with them. And guess who the adult was? <laughs> Granny had to go through... But it was fascinating, and I just think that those adventure-type caving and the accessibility that people have now at the caves and having it preserved, as they do with the, the way that we are managing it at the moment, is just for the longevity of the, of the caves and being able to share it into the future. I think it's just so important. And, and, and it is, it is. It come, and it comes back to that, that stuff that I was talking about before, that they're, mm. they're also a living ecosystem. Yeah. And, and opening a cave up, by definition of what a cave is, yeah. changes what the cave is. Mm. And so you have to be really careful that you're not changing too much. So one thing I didn't realise um, until the, the tour today is that the concrete pathways um, absorb the um, CO2, I think it is. The humidity. The humidity. That's James. You may not have heard that, but that was James from... That, yes, it absorbs, the, <laughs> absorbs the, the, the humidity. And so that changes the whole dynamic within the cave. And that's these concrete paths, which they wouldn't do now, but it goes all the way through Victoria Cave. And to... I mean, ideally, you would replace those with something else, but that's going to cost money that you need to keep the doors open and other kinds of things, I suppose. Um, Steve, you, you and, and, and um, Liz, Dr Liz Reed, um, you have a house full of things, um, but historical things, and, and Barb mentioned the, the Paleontology Week stuff, but you, I know you've got this alert, like you've got a Naracourt alert on all of the, the auction sites, and... You probably would have retired by now and be living in a giant villa, but you've instead got this house full of Naracourt historical stuff. Um, how, did, how, does, how, does, uh, how does that kind of sneak up on you? Um, yeah, it sort of did. It just sneaks up on you and it starts with uh, you know, a little souvenir and you start collecting the stuff from 
from the period that you're there uh, and special occasions. And uh, there's some photos here that um, some people may not have seen. Um, Melbourne Cup in the cave when the, when the actual Melbourne Cup toured and we, we took it down the cave and took photos of it in the cave. Um, but but then you, you see some of the old stuff and you go, oh, that, that's nice. I think I should buy that. And and uh, and then then you be, then it becomes an obsession. And as Michael said, um, we've got alerts on eBay and gum, anything anything that sells products. And uh, and then it becomes very competitive. And and uh, some of the things have cost a reasonable sum of money, like in the many hundreds of dollars. But uh, I don't know whether we're driving the market up or sending ourselves broke, one or the other. <laughs> it's probably a combination of both. But, but, but it is. It just becomes an obsession. And now we have a great collection. And we're now at the point that. Um, now, now what do we do with it? And it's like we've we've spent you know 25 years putting this collection together that belongs somewhere. So at some point it'll be kept together and, and put in a location where everybody can can enjoy it. Now now Narrow Court is an inter- interesting location in terms of First Nation histories, isn't it? It's it's mm-hmm. almost like a a crossroad meeting place, meeting place, yeah. and and and. What I love about Australia as a as a continent is that it is a it is a continent of countries, <laughs> and has been for tens and tens and tens of thousands of years, and we understand that stories have been told in this country, of, or this this continent of countries for all of those thousands of years. Um, what what do we know about connections? And sometimes in a place like Narakot, it's hard to know those connections because there's a lot of lost history and a lot of lost stories because of, mm. of colonisation. And, and, and obviously, again, none of us are First Nation in this place, yeah. so it's not for us to, 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 mm. to be telling all the stories, but I think we need to acknowledge it. But is, yeah. is, 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 is there stuff that we've learnt yeah, so there is um, there is a story that I'm aware of relating to to Bat Cave and um, one of the the local elders uh, who now lives up at um, Bordertown um, gave told me the story one day and it was about a young couple that uh, wanted to get married but they weren't allowed to so, and they eloped so they went to Bat Cave and hid from everybody so they could be together uh, but they couldn't get out again so they remained in there uh, and so that was that was a, that's a very fast telling of the story but, <laughs> are they like still there yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, you're right it's a it's a connecting connecting place between four four groups yeah and and that's so that's Mantank, Bondic, Matajali Matajali and yep. Potterwich. yep hmm. okay cool um now, um, I'm going to call up somebody from the audience um, because she came in and she said, oh, I've got this thing in this book, in this, in this handwritten... Um, Pat Gerricke, if you'd like to come up. Um, Barb, if you could just shuffle along a little. <laughs> um, so, so, Pat... So that microphone noise was, was Pat banging yes. into the microphone. Yes, banging into the phone microphone. So just lean in a little bit closer. Okay. Don't be afraid. Don't, Don't be, be afraid. afraid. Okay. So, so Pat, you've got an exercise book that's handwritten. Who, who handwrote that? My mother-in-law, Millie Gericke. And, and why, why, why did you bring that? What, what's the because connection? Because Millie Gericke's father was, I've got to look at the name, James Mason. James Mason. And he was one of the ones at the caves. He worked at the caves. So I've got the story of James Mason and Mr. 
Bill Burford actually finding the Alexander Cave. So would you like me to read the story that's written in the book? Millie Gericke was a school teacher. She, she, learned, she went, learned from being teaching for six months, so she taught when she was very young, at 18, went school teaching. She, her first school was at Coomandook, and then you had to live with the family and work for the family after school. So you milked the cows and you fed the children when you were a school teacher. So that's a little bit of story of Millie Gericke. But she was born at the crossroads from the caves in 1899. Millie Gericke was born in 1899 and walked to Kidman's to the school, and Agnes Redman was the teacher at that school. So this is a little bit of history of Millie Gericke, my mother-in-law. So this is Millie Gericke's story of the caves. So do you want yeah, me to read? Yeah, just read, read, read a little bit. I'll, um, read, I'll read what I've got written here. It says my father, but my father was James Mason. I did have to look that up because I said to Baron, what's his name? James Mason. James Mason and Mr. Bill Burf Burford were two of the workmen who were employed in trying to discover another cave suitable for of spending money on, on to make it out a worthwhile proposition. The men discovered several openings with large open spaces and not containing sufficient stalactites and stalagmites, I'll probably say that wrong, to make them suitable for paying money to view them. At last, Mr Redden describes how he one morning was walking about the hill where where men were working, when suddenly he could hear the sweet music of a harp, and he stood still trying to discover where the music was coming from. All he could see was a small opening in the area of stone close to where he stood. He very quietly got down on his knees and putting his ear close to the crack, sure enough, beautiful music was being played. He was so excited he could only think of calling to Father and Bill, who came at once, but the music stopped. Mr Redden could not rest until these two men made a hole large enough for them to get down on a, on a rope ladder. They walked about as well as they could, and they could see lots of possibilities where they knew it could become beautiful. They did not hear music or find any angels. <laughs> when they came back up the rope ladder, Mr Redden insisted on going down himself to investigate. It pleased him very much, so he it doesn't say how far down he went on the rope ladder. He, it pleased him very much to be called out that there was ready to get up, but it began to look as if Miss, it would have, have to be dug out. Being much older than the workman, he kept bending his knees and would get stuck in the small opening. Eventually, they succeeded in pulling him up with ropes under his arms. Sounds painful, doesn't it? <laughs> Eventually, they succeeded in pulling him up with ropes under the arms. As soon as possible, work started on that cave, and after weeks of much hard labour, the cave was made safe for visitors. It was known as the Alexander Cave, and it was a real beauty. Strange to say that they discovered a stone harp down there. They now, that was the story. They now had two paying caves for tourists to inspect, so Father was asked to stay on as assistant guide, a position he kept until he reached 65 years. I can't work out how old he was. <laughs> oh, we'll, 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 we'll just stop there, because okay. I want to yeah. chat some more about it. So, so when you, when did you become aware of this Grandma part of your story? Grandma used to talk about it. 
Grandma, I called her Grandma. Grandma used to talk about the caves quite often. This story was written in 1989 when she wrote, this is a little bit of history. I have got all her books because she used to write a diary every year. A lot of it's about the cow giving birth to caves and you had to work out whether it was a person or a cow or a dog that was named in the story. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Steve, so you, you know lots of the stories of the caves yeah. and the historical stuff and, yeah. and, 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 you know, and you, 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 I've read some stuff about Tennyson Woods who um, was, talks about some fascinating things like prior to, prior to this. What do you know about um, Mason? Mason, wasn't it? James Mason. James Mason. Yeah. What do you know about James Mason? Yeah, so, so, so James Mason and Bill Burford were, were really active caving, working with, mm -hmm. with Redden, and uh, we find their signatures in quite a few places in the caves. Um, Cable Cave is an interesting one, which was found by Telstra, hence the name Cable Cave, when they deep deep ripped along the, the fence and uh, when the cavers first got in the cave there is uh, Mason and Burford written on the stalagmite uh, in the cave so they'd been there well in 1908 about the same time as this was found. Mm. Really interesting thing about Alexandra Cave and uh, the guides might, might not be interested in this, might maybe be interested in this, if you could crawl up behind the staircase where uh, where you come, that the, the concrete staircase, there's a little tunnel there. And when I was when I was smaller, uh, and I crawled crawled up behind there, and I thought I'm going where nobody's been before. I got to the end of it, and James Mason is in his signature at the end of the hole. <laughs> and I thought, wow, he got up here with a candle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he must have been one heck of a caver. That's all I can say. Now we we're getting close to time, but I want to come with a with a quote from Tennyson Woods. We learned that the dust we tread upon was once alive. The rock on which we stand has lived and died, has been a thing of life and is now a stone. And I think that's the wonderful thing to remember about the caves. Mm. It is that the things that were there are living, were living organisms that lived amongst the people that now, well, that lived in the same place that the people that now live here lived. That is the end. Please thank our guests. Thank you, Erica, Steve, and Pat, and Bob over there. Um, and um, Sarah. It's time to spread some paleo jam.